Hello, this is Gidon Rothstein, and this is Perek Dalet of Sefer Eicha, Chapter 4 of the Book of Eicha. This is a return to a one-time acrostic, and the tradition is, this is a kina that Yoshiyahu, that uh, Yirmiyahu, the prophet, said over Yoshiyahu, the king. Uh, Rashi says that already in the first Pesach, so let's read the first Pesach, and then we'll see the first verse. Ve'icha yu'am zahav yishne ha'ketem ha'tov, tishtapechna avne kodesh berosh kol chutzot, how, alas, the gold is dulled, right? You, you, Amazahab. The gold is dulled. The JPS says the meaning is uncertain. Debased the finest gold. The sacred gems are spilled at every street corner. So we're going to be returning to the mode of lamentation in which we're talking about the great things that have been brought down and the terrible tragedies that have occurred. So here, it is the loss of gold and it's, uh, and it's having, and the precious stones having been poured through the streets that we seem to be talking about. So Rashi understands it as being a kina, a lamentation, this whole section, as being over Yoshiahu. Yoshiahu is a king of Israel who dies just a little bit, around 23 years, it would seem, before the final destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. In his time, uh, the, the, the Navi in Malachim Bet, at the end of Malachim Bet, in chapters 22 and 23, seemed to imply that he found a book of, which Chazal identified as the book of Devarim, that had been, not perhaps lost, but unknown, or not well enough known for a long time, and that in the book he read the Tochacha, or was, had read to him the Tochacha, and understood that the Jewish people were headed for disaster, and led to a mass tshuva movement, a mass repentance movement, which, however, for various reasons on our topic, falls short. Interestingly, in terms of the context of Eicha, uh, one of the reasons or one of the examples of it falling short is that at the end of Yoshio's life comes about because the king of Egypt wants to pass through the land of Israel. And Yermiyoho, in Chazal's reading of history, understood that Yermiyoho tells him that he should allow it, that, Yir, that he should just let him go through and yield to him. And Yoshiahu decided that no, that Hashem had promised that at a time when the Jews are being good, no enemy could pass through them, even in Yoshiahu's understanding of the way the Pesachim go, even if he doesn't plan to conquer the land of Israel itself, he just wants to get through it. Yoshio thought that he could resist that as well, even though, despite Yumio telling him that he could not. So that idea, that image of even this great king, who is greatly admired, the Pesach says about him, that no king had returned to God with all his heart like Yoshiahu did, even such a king was unable to understand that when it came time for to listen to a Navi, you have to just listen to the Navi, even though it seems to go against your understanding of the way uh, Tanakh goes, the way Halacha goes, the way Scripture goes. That's a very interesting topic of its own. By Chazal's perspective, that the kina, I mean, they do it based on a psa, on pilkim because the psukim say the pasuk says Rashi quotes halo hi ktuva in derei The pasuk says halo hi katuv derei bet yutet halo hi katuv al ktuva al sefer hakinot. So the fact that it's ktuva al sefer hakinot, Chazal understood this is eicha is sefer hakinot, the book of elegies of lamentations, and therefore they identified this one as being the book in question. That would then mean that the death of Yoshiahu is seen as a lamentation worthy of inclusion in our morning of the Beit HaMikdash. And I suspect it's because it was when Yoshiahu did all this tshuva and worked so hard to uh, to really bring the Jews back, and it failed, failed and fell short. That was really the moment when the Churban, in some sense, started. Because it was at that point that their fate was sealed. And Hashem tells them that. Hashem says, well, you're going to die in peace, and you're not going to see any of the disasters that are coming. Everything you've done is not going to have the desired effect of stopping it, of forestalling it, of staving it off forever. So that we therefore mourn 
Yoshio, Yemio, mourn the Yoshio because he is the beginning of the end, sort of like what we do on Asar B'Tevet, where we mourn the beginning of the siege, because that was the beginning of the end, whether or not people were able to see it. And then on Nekodesh, when it says that, that uh, the, the precious stones were poured out at the top of every street, Rashi understands that to be the blood of Yermiyahu, which would, he was riddled with arrows in his death in, in battle, and that, so the blood would pour from each wound, and Yermiyahu would, would bury each piece of blood, and be Mekonin, be eulogizing, elegizing, or whatever, lamenting each piece of blood, as if it was a precious stone, the blood of Yoshiyahu Amelech. So that tragedy, it's a complicated tragedy, it's a complicated vision of tragedy, in which this great person, is undeniably great, and yet does a terrible, well, not terrible, but a, something that leads to his death by disobeying a prophet, which is in some sense a terrible uh, transgression. And so you have this picture of Yirmiyahu nonetheless appreciating his greatness, even as he also led to his own downfall and also fell short of the full mark. Nonetheless, we recognize his greatness. So the precious children of Zion is what the JPS has. It has once valued as gold. Now that once valued as gold says, So Rashi is based on a Gemara in Gittin. The Gemara in Gittin says, that they would, that they were covered in uh, gold. They would like use gold as a covering, as a, as an adornment. So the Gemara says it can't be true because there were two measures of gold put in the world, and one goes to Rome, one goes to the rest of the world, meaning that this wasn't, it's an unimaginable, it's the Gemara at the time, that there was enough gold to really uh, cover all the people. So they don't take that literally, rather they say, and Rashi says it as well, that they were, that, so the Gemara says that they would denigrate gold with their beauty, with their greatness, and Rashi just says that people used to, and this is what the JPS has, once valued as gold. So Rashi says also they were once uh, praised as if they were gold, and then, Alas, they are counted as earthen pots, worthy uh, work of a potter's hands. In other words, they've they've been devalued. They used to be either better than gold, or looked at like gold, or compared to gold, and now their value has fallen so greatly. That is what Yirmiyahu is mourning here in this kingdom. So they've gone down. Not only in the world's estimation of them, but Pazik Gimel is telling us that whereas even jackals is what the JPS ha- English has it as, right? Even the jackals offer the breast and suckle their young, meaning they have compassion on their young. But my poor people has turned cruel like ostriches of the desert. So Rashi says that what would happen is they would see their children dying and complaining of famine and hunger during the siege or during hard times in Yerushalayim. Nobody would give to them, and Rashi understands it to be because, not because of a lack, that's a tragedy of one sort, but the tragedy here is of a different sort, because their lives were actually more important to them, they cared about their lives um, more significantly than they cared about their children's lives, and that is a, certainly a higher level of tragedy, and a and a marker of how low the Jews had fallen in Yermiyahu's understanding of them, just before the Churban. So I think it's common, or it might be common, to wonder and to think that maybe the Jews were worshipping idols, and that's what they were doing. They were too focused on temple worship. They weren't giving enough charity. They weren't feeding enough of the poor. So this chapter is going to show us that when we talk about the descent or the decline, the moral decline of the Jewish people before the Churban, it really spread to much, much more. Now, I think, I suspect, 
that the Navi assumes and the Tanakh assumes that the involvement with idol worship will eventually necessarily lead to a decline of one's moral values, a loss of one's understanding of moral values, but that's probably a topic for a different time, but one very relevant to our times today, in which it might be that Chazal and the Tanakh understand that the wrong ethic about the nature of God and the wrong ethic about the nature of sexuality, which is the Arayot in Judaism, must necessarily lead to wrong moralities and other things as well. And that's what we're going, that part of it, the second half, is what we're going to see in this parak. The tongue of the suckling cleaves to its palate for thirst, little children beg for bread, and nobody gives them a morsel. So the Ramban in Shemot points out that the reason why you would point to the young is that they uh, bear the burdens of hunger and famine first because it strike it hits them first. They're more delicate in composition. They need the regular drinking and the regular liquidation. More not liquidation, regular um hydration, sorry. They need regular hydration more than other people do, so they see them first. And the Poresi and Laham Rashi is at least implying wasn't only because they didn't have, it was because they wanted to save it for themselves. Plus like hey uh, those who used to feast on dainties lie famished in the streets and those who were reared in purple have embraced the refuse heaps. So this is an example of how low they've fallen. And, and it's a puzzle like this that I always wonder about now. It's easy for me to say now in a time of recession when sort of everybody's coming to understand these lessons. But nonetheless, the lessons we're thinking about in the question of when times are good how much do we spend and how wildly do we spend and how much do we feel comfortable just spending and how much do we have in mind the possibility of this Pasuk, that one day those same people who feast on a date might like famish in the streets, those who are reared in purple have, will, will, will have to imbe- embrace refuse heaps. So that question of what's appropriate luxury and how to live in good times I think is a very difficult question and I think it comes up in tragic times, especially as we read this Pasuk, to understand and to think about what kind of tra- what kind of luxuries we should feel free allowing ourselves and how worried we are about the future, how, we're, how aware we are of the future and the possibility of our fortunes changing uh, in time. Pasuk Vav, Vayigdal avon batami mechatat sedom hafuchach moraga velochaluvah yadaim. The sin, the guilt of my poor people, right? Vayigdal avon batami exceeded the iniquity of stone, which is overthrown in a moment without a hand striking it. So on the iniquity, right, the Pasuk says, So the JPS English translated as, as the iniquity, and then it says, that is, in a footnote, it says, that is the punishment. Whereas, and the way the, the Koran English says it is similar, for the doom of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. Now Rashi says, the way, the way that's working is, Rashi says, so it's clear to everybody that Vaidala von Batami is not itself, well, it's clear to the English translation that it's not itself the sin, it's the more the punishment that we're talking about. What Rush is saying is the punishment is revelatory of the sin, and that's an idea that is not so popular today. The idea that from the punishment and from the time of trouble, one can infer anything about the sin that might have led to it. So that's what Yemiel was assuming here. How Fukhakamaga, that stone, was just destroyed in an instant. They didn't have a long, drawn out suffering, and in some sense that's better, that's uh, more comfortable, it's easier, they just got killed. Uh, but And they didn't have the enemy coming in and destroying them and and taking over everything. It was just a complete destruction. They didn't have to see other people take over their hard-earned work. So that would suggest that we have, we, the Jewish people in, in Yerushalayim, had something worse going on than Saddam, which is usually the uh, 
gold marker, the, the gold standard of evil. So what do, what do we have? So Pasuk Zayin, Zakun Izirah Mishelek Tzach Mechalav Admu Etzem Ipininim Sapir Gizratam. Her elect were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their limbs were ruddier than coral, their bodies were like sapphire. So now we're going to go into how great they were to see what it was that then turned so terrible. So Rashi says, on Nizireha, first he says, Sireha, her officers, and then he says, which is what uh, GPS had her elect, but the rest is Vani Omer, Nizireha Mamash, Beoter. I mean, the actual Nazarites, the people who had taken the oaths of being a Nazir, and Rashi says, because they would have to grow their hair, and then they would have lots of hair, and they would look good. Now that's a very interesting Rashi, not in terms of our psukim, but in terms of the question of, is a Nazir growing his hair to look better or to look worse? So Rashi seems to think that while you grow your hair, you might not even look better because you'll have a lot of flowing hair and that looks young and vibrant and exciting. But at the end of the Nazir time, you're going to have to shave it off and that's where you look bad. Others might have thought that just the growing of the hair itself was a evil, but Rashi doesn't seem to see, seem to think so. Um, Right, and then Rashi says, and they're going to eventually turn, all of this is going to turn black and bad, and that's part of what's talking about. So, Now their faces are blacker than soot, they're not recognized in the streets, their skin is shriveled on their bones, they become dry as wood. So that is the outcome of this. They started out great, and they turned into, and they lost it, and they turned into... Um, people of black skin, of black skin, meaning they they were hungry and poor, and therefore they didn't have the beauty that they once had because their skin shriveled on the bones, became dry as wood, and they lost all of the things that had made them stand out, made them special. And Pasuk goes further with that. Pasuk Tet Tovim Hayu Chal Lecher Mechal Lerav Shem Yazuvu Midu Karim Mitinuvot Sadai that the people who were killed by the sword. We're better off than those killed by famine. So then the JPS notice that the next phrases are hard to understand. It's not clear what they mean. It says, Yazuvu midukari, shame Yazuvu midukari mitinuvot sadai. So the Korean English, which is trying to, for I think a fairly little translation, for when pierced through, the former do ooze with the produce of the fields. It's almost as if it would be better if at least when you die and your insides come out, there's something in them, right? There's food in them. So that, Although it doesn't explain why that's so much better. What's so much better about, you know, about a person whose stomach has been pierced by the sword losing out actual food? I'm not sure why that's better. I think it suggests that it means that until the moment of death, you were, uh, you were at least had a life in which you were eating and, and were satiated and didn't suffer for it. But the JPS suggests who pined away as though wounded for lack of the fruits of the field. So they're suggesting that that was the lead up, uh, the lead in. That was the problem. Rashi su- su- suggests, that the enemy would, would roast uh, meat or on grasses. They would like uh, made a, make barbecues basically outside the walls during the siege. They would roast meat and the smell of it would go into these people who were in famine because they were under siege and they were suffering through a famine and their insides would explode and then would ooze out and Rashi says even if you're pierced with the sword and that causes some kind of an embarrassing painful death Rashi is saying this death was worse than that because it was the death of suffering not only through the famine but through the experience of the smell of food and meat that you couldn't get to, and that was worse than anything else they they could have imagined. Then then the then the then the 
than the death that came, that would have come just through the sword by itself. And the Gemara in Bavabacha Chet Amid Bet notes that this is a proof. They quote this possibly they also quote a Savara, just an idea that one has, one has distress, one is a painful death of long distress of the famine one, whereas uh, death by the sword is sort of instantaneous. The Gemara Bavabacha uses our Pasuk as a proof to tell us that as a proof to tell us that the death by famine is worse than the death by the sword. Okay, going on to Pasuk Yud. Yedei Dashim Rechmaniyot Bishlu Yaldeim Ayulivaro Lamo Bishever Bat Ami The hands, with their own hands, tender-hearted women have cooked their children. Such became their fear and the disaster of my poor people of Bat Ami. So, uh, so that image of Nashim Rachmaniot means women who used to be Rachmaniot but are no longer Rachmaniot. But then Rashi suggests, Rashi and Sanhedrin or Kutalam Bed suggest though that even though they weren't Rachmaniot to their children, but they would invite their friends. This is how many times the words Levarot Lamo. They would invite their friends to join them in the meal, whereas in Stone, it says Yad and and it was this advantage that let them get some kapara. So Rashi, even though earlier he had noted and said very clearly that our sin is worse than the sin of Sodom, here he's finding at least some redeeming qualities within the sin of the Jewish people, this time for all that they were cooking their children, and for all I know it's children who died of famine, and therefore they weren't killing their children, they were just cooking them, and so that the sin would be somewhat less horrifying. But they also would include other people in it, to some extent, there is a, an incident in Tanakh, in Malachim, where a woman complains to the king that her friend had, that they had made an agreement, that they would kill and eat their children, and she had done her side of the deal, and the other one didn't do her side of the deal, so that would seem to conflict with that Rashi. Rashi perhaps is talking about the general case, and that was why that court case, that complaint to the king, was so out of the ordinary, but that in general, even if they had to eat their children, which is a terrible thing of its own, they did include others in it. I mean, in the good way. So the Lord vented all his fury, poured out his blazing wrath. He killed the fire in Zion, which consumed its foundations. Hashem has let go all of his anger. Rashi says, That was burning for several years, and now has been, has given vent to it, when he took vengeance on them. So this Pasuk is an example of reminding us that for all that Hashem punishes us at this point harshly with terrible consequences and with painful results, it wasn't an instantaneous reaction. It wasn't we did one thing wrong and Hashem just lashed out at us, but rather Hashem has built up, had built up much stores of what would have been legitimate anger and then finally let it go by destroying all of Zion, all its foundations. The enemies couldn't believe, the kings of the earth didn't believe any of the inhabitants that a foe or adversary could enter the gates of Jerusalem because for a long time Jerusalem was a fortified city that was able to resist all comers. So this uh, happening to them, and you had some you had various things happening where the Yerushalayim had been, had been saved, so there might have uh, arisen sort of a, a legendary, a mythic status about it that no, you couldn't really destroy Jerusalem, when really the only thing that kept Jerusalem safe was the was God, who was behind it, and as soon as God abandoned Yerushalayim, the city fell and was destroyed. From 
the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests who had shed in her midst, the blood of the just. So Rashi just notes, The prophets of falsehood are what led, the, the lies of those prophets are what led to this happening. What led this, to this happening? So there's there, there are examples in Tanakh. There's the example of Zechariah who gets killed in the Beni Mikdash and who Chazal understand in the Gemara Gittin as having been avenged by Nebuz Aradan because his blood ran from the time he was killed until the time that uh, the Beni Mikdash of the Temple was destroyed. Uh, but it's an example here. And as an example, I think I pointed out before, so I don't want to belabor the point of the Nevi'im and the Kohanim are not just some leaders of the nation. They are the moral leaders of the nation. They are the leaders who speak in the name of morality, and yet they had been causes of, sources of corruption. And so, so, and, and, and so that makes it a big problem because it means that to some extent, and you have to always balance this, you have to, you have to follow your leaders in life, but you also have to follow them critically and not unquestioningly, because this was an example where the leaders would have spoken, did speak, in moral terms of themselves as being moral leaders. So the, the Nevi'im were falsely telling you what you should do, what was right and appropriate to do, and yet I would think that if I were a regular person, I would say, well, that's what my leaders say. So that's a hard question in terms of when do we follow and do we not follow, because the answer as tempting as it is, the answer is not, well, never follow your leaders then because they'll get it wrong because that's why they're leaders. They're leaders because they spend time and effort and getting to know the right ways to handle things and be thinking about things being a problem. So it's not a, the idea of just giving up on leadership is, or is a problem. And yet here's an example of where it's also very difficult to understand when to follow them. And here they were committing murder. So I think committing open murder is probably a good clue that, uh, that the person is going wrong and in some wrong way. I recently heard on the radio somebody's being interviewed on some radio station who is a religious leader, not a Jewish religious leader, but is a religious leader of sorts, and who was advocating a policy that was against the tradition of his own religion, whatever it may be, and say, well, we have to change, this is how I understand it, this is what God would want from us. So that's part of the challenge here. Here you had Nevi'im, you had prophets who say, well, we don't have prophets today, but you have people today who will speak in the name of God, and then you'll listen to what they have to say, and they'll say false things. So understanding how to distinguish between the two is a great challenge, but a vital and necessary challenge, because we need to be called to the service of God, and yet we need to be called to the accurate and proper and appropriate service of God. So that's a challenge underlying here that the Jews of the time of the destruction completely failed to serve, to, to, to succeed at, and part of the way that you knew this was because you had righteous, innocent people being killed in the midst of Yerushalayim. Pazik Yudal tells you how many. No, the one, they wandered blindly through the streets. The rest thinks it was actual blind people. Rush says, no, Ivrim, when the blind people would walk in the marketplace, their legs would slip from all the blood of the killed people that were being killed in their midst. And, and those who were there couldn't, uh, and they were so dirty from having slipped and fallen into the blood, nobody would touch their clothing because, because their clothing was all filled with the blood of these people. Meaning, if you were blind and you didn't, you would walk, you would slip on the blood, you'd fall on the ground, your clothing would get some blood on it, you'd walk some more, you'd get more blood. Until the point that, Rashi says, they would call out, stay away from this person who's so dirty. Clean people shouted at them, away, away, touch not. They wandered and wandered again. The nations had resolved they shall stay here no longer. They're not going to be there, right? So, 
so that's going to be the enmity of the nations are going to get us, uh, take us away from there. Pasuk Tedzayin, Pene Hashem Chilakam Lo Yosif Lahabitam Pene Chalanim Lo Nasau Uzekenim Lo Chananu. So the, the, the Lord's countenance is turned away from them, right? Pene Hashem Chilakam is turned away from them. He will look on them no more. They should no regard for priests, no favor to Elders, and this is going to be a part of the reason why we're going to be sent to exile, why we're going to have the destruction. And here the Kohanim are people we were supposed to honor and look up to and serve in the proper way, and yet the people didn't. So the Kohanim are serving a double function. Apparently there are some Kohanim who are doing their job right and appropriately and well, but there are other Kohanim who are participating in the killing of in the killing of righteous, innocent people, as we saw back in Pasuk Yigimel. So I don't, uh, I've been told by listeners, they don't like hearing plugs for any of my books, but it is true that in a book of mine called Murder of the Mikdash, uh, I had a personal, particular priest who seemed not to be behaving properly, and probably people were very offended. Why would I think that priests would ever do such a thing? So here you have in the Pasuk the two kinds of Kwanim you had. You had Kwanim who were doing the right thing, and they need to be honored, and the people didn't do that well enough. But earlier you had Kwanim who would participate in murder, and those would be a very different kind of Kwanim. So that is why we're losing Hashem's presence because we're not honoring the right people, we're not following the right people and our choice of who we follow is a vital important one in terms of setting us up as either a righteous society or not a righteous society. Even now our eyes pine away in vain for deliverance as we waited, still we wait for a nation that cannot help. So is a nation that cannot help. Rashi says when the when the bad times came, they were looking to Paro because they had always set up alliances with Paro and they had been hoping and uh, expecting that Paro would come help them and yet he doesn't. And Rashi tells him Midrash that says that when Paro and the Egyptians were about to come, Hashem made the sea spit out things that looked like the corpses, the bloated corpses from drowning of those who had been killed at Kriyat Yamsuf with the splitting of the sea. So the Egyptians said to themselves, why would we go help them? They were the ones who cause such damage to our people. Now that's a striking midrash for several reasons. First, it explains why, it, it suggests that the Egyptians, it wasn't that they just abandoned us, that Hashem led to it because Hashem wanted us to be destroyed and that reminds us that making alliances and expecting our political alliances to work even in the face of what Hashem wants. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make alliances necessarily. In that case, we shouldn't because Yirmiyahu the prophet was telling us not to. But let's say today, if you're going to talk about making political alliances and saying these are necessary for the conduct of, of international relations, that may be true. But doing it in the face of what Hashem wants, in, in, in contradiction to what Hashem would want, could never could never possibly work. That would be one aspect of it. The other aspect of it would be that it would suggest that when Egypt, and this is perhaps obvious, but that when Egypt agreed to make alliances with us, it wasn't as a recognition that the past should be bygones be bygones. We recognize we had hard times in our relationship and now we're going to go. It was in the Egyptians sort of forgetting what had occurred. But once they were reminded of what occurred, they once said, said, oh, well, why should we have an alliance? That would suggest that when we're making alliances, one of the things that we should want to be thinking about is making clear that the alliance is being built in spite of everything that occurred in the past so that it shouldn't happen that we get abandoned within that alliance just because people then eventually do remember what happened in the past. But there has to be a, a forthright and a well-understood agreement that the past will be left behind in the name of building a positive and productive future together. Let me also just mention this. Duarte Bovacama, on way back when Hashem said he's going to destroy us with fire. I just don't want to leave any all of these images in the negative. So Gemara Bovacama Samach Bet quotes that Pasuk and says that Hashem saw it as an obligation on him, uh, an outstanding debt. Hashem destroyed Zion with fire. That's our Pasuk. Vayatzat Eish 
And then Hashem says, you're going to build it with fire. That's a Pesach Zechariah, which says, Hashem will be a Chomat Eish. So, these are sad prakim, and there's nothing to do about it. We did the sins, and we have to, we paid the price for it, and we can only lament it and only be sad about it, but to, at least every so often, if we can find an opportunity to throw in a little bit of Nechama in the future, which is available and ready for us as soon as we come to serve Hashem the way Hashem wants to be served, then we have the time, then we, we do it, and all those around us do it, we can get back to those times. So throw in a little Nechama here, a little bit of comfort for us in the context of reading these very sad and very difficult psukim. Pasuk Yudchet. So Tzadu, Rashi says, that The enemies were ready to ambush us, so we weren't even able to walk in our streets. Uh, the JPS says that our steps were checked, we could not walk in our squares. Uh, our doom is near, our days are done, alas, our doom has come. So this is uh, suggesting that even internally within the city, they already had lost their sense of security, and I've often wondered about places, there are places in the world where people can't walk, can't really walk outside because it's not safe, and I always wonder about people, how people feel comfortable living in such a place. Why would you want to live in a place where you can't walk at night, and, and what would what would it take for you to say, well, this isn't a place for me to be living anymore? So if you live in such a place, I apologize if I'm offending you, but I wonder about that. I just wonder about what leads us, I remember hearing years ago, a place where you know everybody lives in a gated community, they have huge gates, and they have security guards, but they're very wealthy. So I always wonder about the choice to stay in such a place, particularly when one has money. So you say, well, that's why I have my money there. So particularly when one has money, I wonder about the choice to stay in such a place and not to flee as fast as one can. And here, I think that's part of what the Pasuk is saying. And that was the beginning of the end. That's very close to the end. Those who were chasing us were faster than the griffin vultures of the heavens. So Pasuk Yuted, the... the the, the Koran has vultures and the JPS has eagles, which is surprising because Nesher, it's becoming common knowledge now that Nesher is a griffin vulture, as I was taught many years ago by Rabbi Amnon Haramadi. Uh, she lived and be well. So, um, they just in the mountains, in the desert, they ambushed us. means the breath of our life, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their traps, and we had thought that he, we would rely on him to live among the nations. So, uh, so Rashi says, Mashiach Hashem is a reference again to Yoshio, so we're coming back to Yoshio. We've gotten away from him. We started off as a king about Yoshio. I guess the way you have to understand it in Chazal's reading is that you start with Yoshio, and you go through all the terrible things that happen, and we see them now, in this puzzle as all the aftermath of the death of Yoshio. We had thought that we would rely on him. He would be the one to lead us to a renewed era, a, n- a new era, or renewed era of greatness and of wonder and of being able to hold our heads high up among the nations. And then he was caught in their traps and killed. And then that was really uh, a marker of the end for us, which is why he makes his way into Kinot, into Echav. Pasuchav Alef, Sisi v'simchi batadom, yoshevet be'eretz utgam alayachta avarkos tishkeri v'titari. So rejoice and have fun, O Edom, who lives in the land of Utz, you'll get yours as well, right? Gamalech Tavarkos is the cup will come around to you as well, and you, meaning the cup of destruction, and you will get drunk on it as well, and you will then be destroyed, the stripped bare. And the GPS has as, uh, expose your nakedness. So Rashi points out, why are we talking about Edom? Edom didn't have a lot to do with the first destruction of the first Beit Dash and Rashi understands it at least to be a nevuah, and it's an out-of-character nevuah, nevuah al-churban bayit shenishi, yicharvuhu romiyim. So I remember years ago hearing a professor in college, uh, Shalom Karmi, who suggested that by and large, 
Nevi'im don't go that specifically that far into the future. He's talking about Koresh at the end of the book of Yeshayahu. It's a different discussion. But here, at least in Rashi's reading, it would be not true. It would be that Yumiyo is being fairly specific and knowing that 500 years into the future, uh, 500 years, a little more, more than 500 years, more than 600 years into the future, that Yoshiyahu would, that uh, the the Romans would be the ones to destroy, the Romans were the sons of Edom would be the ones to destroy the second Beit HaMikdash. Uh, so even accepting that, and I totally do, but accepting that, what would be the point of Yumiyahu throwing that in here? And then says, you can enjoy yourselves for a while, but at the end, you're going to get uh, the cup of punishment coming back to you as well. So why would it be that Yumiyahu would throw that into this kina, into this paragnolid of the keynote? So I would just note that in the Haggadah of Pesach, of the Ridva, the Ridva talks about why after the fourth cup, around the fourth cup, we say, we say that we open the door for Eliyahu, so people all know that because that's the custom. It's a very beautiful custom. You open the door and the list opens the door. It's all exciting. And you have the kosher and it seems like he's drinking and all of that. But why is it that we say it there, the Yeridva says? The Yeridva says because once we fulfill the mitzvah of drinking four cups of wine Pesach night that Chazal gave us, and those four cups, he says, we always say those four cups respond to or parallel the four languages of redemption that Hashem used when promising to take us out of Egypt. And that's certainly true. But the Yeridva assumes that it's also a reference to the four cups of punishment that Hashem is going to give to the nations of the world. So on the last cup, when we're drinking the fourth cups, that we're hoping that that time will come soon, and that's a reference to this idea of cups of punishment, cups of Puranut. So the Ridva is suggesting, I think, that when we drink cups on Pesach night, it's not only that we're drinking it in memory of the redemption that Hashem is doing for us, but that the more we do the mitzvot, the more those enemies that are those nations that are our enemies will deserve their punishment. So I suspect that it's coming in here to fit into the theme that Rashi has it for the whole parak. That just like the loss of Yoshio was the beginning of the end for that bayit, it was also the beginning of the end in general. Meaning that had Yoshio been more successful, then maybe the whole course of Jewish history would have been different, and there wouldn't have been a second Beit Hamikdash, there wouldn't have been a second Chorban, and there wouldn't have been any of these things. And and so that we take a moment here to point out and to note to the other nations that while they're destroying us and while they're benefiting from our downfall, they shouldn't get too comfortable and they shouldn't think that it's going to stay that way. Your iniquity for Tzion is expiated. It's obviously going to be for the future that in taking our punishment we will get all of our, uh, it will get all resolved. And we will never go into exile again. He'll exile no longer. Whereas for Edom is going to be noted, there are sins. And Hashem will uncover those sins. And they will then start getting to their punishment. So to some extent, we have it better because we get our punishment first. But once we've gotten it out of the way, we will then be able to just enjoy the goods and the benefits of being the, the people of God in this time of the future, in the Messianic era. Whereas they will need to get all of their punishment. And then the tides will be turned in ways that will be positive for us and distressing for them. And while the distressing part is not something that we hope for, the part where we get our goods is something that we can hope for, and own, and today at least, on a little bit of a happy note. So have a great day.